Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. November 8th, 2010, in a city called Markham in Ontario, which is located 30 minutes from Toronto, three gunmen enter into a home, tie everyone up who's residing inside, and start shooting. Hardly anything is taken from the home, despite the fact the family home had several luxury cars and cash that were never touched. At first, police thought this was a robbery turned bloody and brutal, but the truth was far more shocking. The home belonged to Han and Bic Pan. Han and Bic had immigrated to Canada from Vietnam in 1979 and made Toronto their home. They married and they worked very hard for everything they had. Han, he had found work as a tool and die maker and Bic, she worked in the same factory as her husband. In 1986, they gave birth to their daughter, Jennifer, and then three years later, they had their son, Felix. In 2004, they had saved enough of their hard-earned dollars and bought a big, beautiful home in Markham. Han and Bic, they wanted the very best for their children, and they pushed them into succeeding at whatever they saw fit. Jennifer, she thrived in the arts and was on her way to the Olympics for figure skating, but she suffered a knee injury at the age of 14 and could no longer compete. Since the age of four, Jennifer had been playing piano and she was also very dedicated and talented at that. And she even taught piano lessons to earn money when she got older. After Jennifer graduated high school with good grades, she was accepted into university to study pharmacology. And this made her parents so happy as they wanted her to pursue a career in healthcare, but they didn't think she could make it as a doctor which kind of seems like a slight to pharmacists, but I'm sure it wasn't meant to. Felix, he seemed to thrive in academics more so than Jennifer. And after he graduated high school, he was accepted into university where he studied engineering. You could imagine these must have been very proud parents having two successful children. But you know what? This was no accident. Bick and Han, they were pretty strict with their children and they always kept them focused and busy. No time for getting into trouble when you're training and studying all the time. The fact Jennifer was on her way to the Olympics by the time she was 14 and also mastered piano enough to teach it, I mean, that's very impressive to me. Just one of those things would impress me, but both? I couldn't even imagine the amount of time she had to put in to get where she was so young. By 2010, it could be argued the Pan family had it all, including a Lexus and Mercedes-Benz parked in their two-car garage. But this is the year nothing would ever be the same again for them. On the night of November 8th, Han, Bick, and Jennifer were in their home. Felix, he was, he was not there. He was not in the home. He was away at university studying. Seemingly out of nowhere, three gunmen entered the property demanding money. The gunmen eventually take Han and Bick into the basement of the home and shot Han twice. One of the shots was in the face and the other was in his shoulder. Bick had also been shot twice. She was shot in the head and the other bullet was in her neck. This was an absolutely brutal scene. One of the gunmen had also went upstairs and found 24-year-old Jennifer. 
The gunman had tied her up with a shoelace to a staircase banister in the home and then fled the scene. After the gunman left the home, Jennifer was able to pull her phone out of the back of her waistband and make a call to 911. At the time, she had a flip phone and she was tied up. Her hands were tied up behind her her back and she was tied to this banister of the staircase. It was a miracle that she could place this call. During the 911 call when Jennifer is pleading for help, the operator can hear Jennifer's father, Han, screaming for help in the background. The sound of her father screaming for help is bone chilling and I really do not recommend looking up this call. It's hard to listen to someone in in agonizing pain and suffering. You can really hear that he is badly injured in his cries for help. He managed to crawl up the stairs and out the front door onto the front lawn where he screamed for help covered in blood with a gunshot to his face and shoulder. Bick, unfortunately, she had died immediately. Not only was Han in pain from his gunshot wounds, but he was right beside his wife when she was shot and killed. His wife of 30 years. A neighbor was outside and saw the horrific aftermath of the attack and had also called 911. I have covered a lot of brutality on this podcast, but this, this just really got to me. It is so cold and incredibly evil, like, like most murders, but the fact he was beside his wife helpless as strangers murdered her in the home that they had worked so hard for and then shot him twice as well, once being in the face and left him for dead, that is just so heartless. When police and emergency services arrive at the scene, Bick was already dead. Han was badly injured, but alive. And Jennifer was found without injury, but she was tied up. After gathering some information, they believe that the gunman targeted the home for a home invasion and something went terribly wrong. But they also think something else might be going on here. Han was put into a medically induced coma and Jennifer sat with him for hours in the hospital. The only person to give them more detail, to give police more detail on who these gunmen were and what happened in the home that night was Jennifer. So Jennifer, she's brought to the police station from the hospital that night and tells police she was in her room watching TV when she heard her mother calling to her father, calling to Han to come down. She said it wasn't a frantic instruction or even a yell, but it was like a loud tone as she describes in her second interview. She then said she could hear multiple other voices she did not recognize, and this made her uneasy, so she turned her television volume down so she could listen better. She then said the voices seemed to get further away, so she looked out her door, and as she opened her door and looked out, she saw a man in the hallway, and this man saw her, and he came after her, and he had this string in his hand, which was used to tie her up. He instructed her to put her hands behind her back, and he told her, look, I've got a gun on you. As long as you do what I say, everyone will be fine. So she's thinking, okay, as long as I comply, my family will be okay, and I'll, I'll be okay. And the gunman started demanding money from her, which she, she said she gave them her cash, which she earned from teaching piano. The gunman now wanted her to show him where the rest of the money was, and she was brought to where her parents were being held on the main floor of the home. So they hadn't been brought into the basement yet. They were on the main floor. 
from what I gathered, the home has three stories. And this is typical in, in Canada. The top story is where the bedrooms are, the main floor is where the front door is, possibly the living room and kitchen. Um, and then there is also a basement in the home. So this is quite common in Canada and America. It's not common in every country though. Not all countries have basements, I will say that. But their home had a basement. Jennifer said she was brought to the main floor and saw the gunman holding her mother down. And she was concerned about her mother's fate if she didn't tell the gunman what they wanted to hear. A detail I found strange was that she said the gunman looked in the fridge for her mother's purse. Why Why would they look in the fridge for that? That, that was never explained. It was in this interview that I saw when Jennifer was being interviewed by police and she's saying that the house was really dark and the only time that there was light in the home was when the one of the gunmen opened up the fridge and the fridge light came on and they were looking for her mother's purse in the fridge so I don't know that never got explained further I just always find that really odd at one point she refers to one of the gunmen as the gentleman and I was, was like what and I like rewound the police interview to listen to that part again she was like and then one of the gentlemen and I was like hold on what rewind again she said she said gentlemen and this seemed very strange to me because wouldn't you refer to the people who murdered your mother and shot your father in the face as a monster not a gentleman so I've, I've just in the first interview watching of that I found that um to be quite odd Jennifer tells police the gunman continued to ask both Bick and Han where their wallets were, and they couldn't find either, so they took Jennifer around the home to locate these things. But the home, it was in such a mess from the gunman ransacking the place, she also couldn't locate these items for them. Eventually, $1,100 was found in her parents' bedroom, and the gunman, I guess, just decided that was enough. I mean, they had this $1,100, they had Jennifer's piano teaching money that she had earned they had that cash and that's when they tied jennifer up to the banister where she was found when police arrived after jennifer had been tied to the staircase banister the gunmen were taking her parents to the basement and she said she could hear her mother screaming for her daughter saying like bring you know i want my daughter or leave my daughter alone don't hurt my daughter and after that that's when she heard gunshots. She said after the first two shots, she heard her mother scream, which indicates Han was shot first. Before those two shots were fired, she heard the gunman yelling, you lied to us. After the first two shots and hearing her mother scream, she then heard another two shots. These were most likely the two shots that killed her mother. After these two shots were fired, she said she heard the gunmen say that they have been there for too long and they have to leave now. So they were like, we got to flee. We got to get out of here. We've made a lot of noise. We've ransacked this place. You know, we got to go. We're drawing a lot of attention to ourselves is probably how, you know, I, I would assume is why they would leave then without taking more stuff then she heard the door close and that's when she heard her father yelling for help and han ran out the door and was looking for help on the street this is when she also managed to get her phone out so this is all happening at the same time so she gets her phone out of her waistband to call police while tied to this banister um and at that time that's when han is heard screaming and running out of the house police now want to know 
if Jennifer remembers anything about the gunman or, you know, if they hid their faces, did she get a good look at them? And she describes one as a black male with dreadlocks. She said there was one gunman she never saw at all because he was downstairs with her parents the entire time. This seemed odd to me because she had previously stated she had seen her mother being pushed down by one of the gunmen on the main floor of the home. Jennifer told police that one of the gunmen had a Caribbean accent and was also a black male. She didn't give much more description than that because she said the lights were off in the house during the attack and that's why she couldn't see their faces. She just got a glimmer of light, like a bit of light when the fridge door was opened looking for her mother's purse. Police asked her why she thought her family was targeted by these gunmen and she thought it was because of the cars that her parents were driving at the time and that their house looks nice. Two days later, police bring Jennifer back in to get further details about the crime. Not just that though, police think Jennifer may not have told the entire truth the first time. Well, this is when I'm going to drop a bomb on this case. Jennifer never graduated high school. She dropped out. She forged her report cards. She forged her acceptance letter to university. And she had been pretending to go to university for two years. She even faked scholarships and loans and graduation transcripts. All the while living with her secret boyfriend and his family. So she was living with her secret boyfriend and his family three to four days a week telling her parents she was at university. Um, But this boyfriend that she had, her parents had previously forbid her to see him. And his name is Daniel Wong. And they had been dating for about seven years. They met in grade 11 and they had been involved ever since. They did break up at one point, which I will talk a little bit more on soon. Jennifer, she really committed to this lie with her parents she took this lie to the maximum she bought secondhand university textbooks she would learn all about pharmacology from online videos and write notes to show her parents hey look I was in class and I and I took these notes so she really went all out she spent a lot of time on this facade she she was never in university she got a job in a restaurant that Daniel worked at and she was teaching piano to earn money which that's a good life but That's not one her parents would allow her to live. I am not familiar with the term tiger parents, but this term is used a lot when describing the pan's parenting style. And it basically means they push their children really hard academically and they have very, very, very high expectations for them and can be disappointed when those expectations aren't met. I'm not sure how Bic and Han didn't know she was faking graduating as, you know, they would never have attended a graduation not a high school graduation or a university graduation and she told them she was only allowed to bring one guest to her it was like her university graduation she was like oh you know there's just so many people there this year that are graduating and everyone can only bring one guest and it would just be really unfair to like choose one of my family members so instead I'm just gonna invite a friend and her parents were um I guess they were like okay because you know they never went to this fake graduation I just have no idea how she lied for so long and got away with it for a very long time under you know an extremely watchful eye like her parents were checking her notebooks they were giving her rides places they were looking at these scholarship letters they were looking at these transcripts they were looking at these report cards and 
you know, they never questioned anything. Why would they? Why would they think that someone would spend, I don't know, hours and hours and hours fabricating this really intricate lie? Eventually, her parents, they discovered this lie. Of course, it was going to get found out eventually. And they were furious. One day, Jennifer's parents followed her to the children's hospital she said she was volunteering at. She said she was working in the blood testing lab there. Some sources say they followed her, um, and then other, other sources say they wanted to give her a ride one day, and she had no choice but to accept this ride. And when they dropped her off, she went into the hospital and, I guess, hid in the ER room for, like, hours until they left, pretending she was, like, volunteering in this blood testing lab they began to become suspicious of their daughter when she had no hospital uniform or id she was like hey mom and dad i'm volunteering at this children's hospital in the blood testing lab and they were like cool can like where's your uniform can we see your id like that's really cool we love that you're doing this and you know maybe we can get a picture i don't know if they asked for a picture but you know it's parents like to see that kind of stuff and she just never produced any uniform or any hospital ID and they were they got suspicious which rightfully so because she was never volunteering there and the entire thing was a lie and that lie was exposed once her parents started calling around and watching her so they grew suspicious and they were like something's going on here let's keep an eye on her let's follow her let's call the places she says she's going to be at and see if she's actually there so she had told her parents she was living with a friend when really she was living with Daniel and his family. But one night they called that friend looking for Jennifer. They were like, hey, can I talk to my daughter? Like this is where she says she lives during the week. And her friend forgot that she was supposed to lie to Jennifer's parents. And she was like, no, Jennifer's not here. Isn't she home? And her parents were like, no, no, she's not. Mm -hmm. And they knew. They were like, okay, yep, something's going on here. So Han, he wanted to kick out Jennifer of the home. He was like, get the fuck out of here. Go fend for yourself. You're lying to us and we don't appreciate it. But Bic, her mother, was more understanding. She convinced Han to let Jennifer stay because kicking her out would only slow her education down more. And Han, he agreed. When it came to his children and education, that was like boom, boom. He just like loved children to be educated because he thought you know they get educated they get a good job live in the Canadian dream so they gave Jennifer two options they told her you can keep living this life you hide from us but we will disown you never speak to you again and we will not support you financially ever again or you can break up with Daniel move back home follow our every rule only leave the home for school because one of the conditions was you have to finish high school and go on to university and become the person we want you to be. So if she could follow all of that, you know, she could choose here. She could choose option A or option B. Option A being keep living your damn life but get the hell out of here and don't expect any help from us. Option B is come here and do exactly as we tell you to do and get an education. In this situation, you think she would choose her boyfriend. I mean, she already has a job. She's teaching piano and working at a restaurant. Her and her boyfriend, you know, they could have got a place on their own. They're both working. I mean, sure, it's not a glamorous life with a huge salary, but, you know, happiness is priceless. 
And clearly this is the life she wanted to live. She had been living that life. There's nothing wrong with that life. She's 24 at this point. She clearly hates the life her parents want her to have. So just break free and live the life you, you know, you've already been living. You've already got it set up. Unfortunately, this is not the option she chose. For some reason, she chose to move back into her parents' home to a life that she clearly did not like, abide by a 9 p.m. curfew rule, have her every move watched, you know, in some source it even said that they were like clocking the mileage on the car when she would take it, they took away her phone, Um, she could only check messages when her parents were watching, and she's 20 fucking four at this age. Like that seems crazy to me to have a 9 p.m. curfew, to have your phone taken away by your parents, to have your laptop taken away by your parents, to have your messages monitored, to have the mileage on the car monitored. That seems pretty outrageous. I mean, I would much rather go and teach piano and work at a restaurant and, and live my best damn life than, than do that. So I don't know. I just, I don't get it at all. She didn't like this. That's why I don't get it. I mean, both options, they have their pros and cons. We definitely know she hated doing what her parents wanted her to do. So this, I just, I don't get it at all. I will never understand why she chose what she did, but I have never been threatened to be disowned by my parents. So I have no idea what that feels like. Maybe the weight of that is enough to make her choose what she chose. Like, okay, fine. Maybe I'll go home. Maybe I'll work shit out. Maybe I'll get my education. Maybe I'll make my parents proud. So, you know, maybe she had this momentum going into it. Like, yeah, I fucked up, but, you know, everything's come out in the wash. I've got a clean slate here and I'm going to go for it. I don't know. But what did, what, who's, who's Daniel Wong? Like, what's, what's up with her boyfriend? What's he, what's he doing? Well, it said that he was a drug dealer, which um, her parents, I'm pretty sure they really would have hated that. In some sources, I saw they really played up this drug dealer aspect. But from what I gathered, he did have a job as a kitchen manager at a pizza restaurant. And he was in university and he did sell some weed. I mean, weed in Canada at that time, it was still illegal. Um but it's now totally legal. And I never saw anything about him selling anything other than weed. But, you know, he's in university. He's working at a pizza shop. He's selling some weed. I, I wouldn't be like, oh, he's a drug dealer. But unfortunately, this is how he was painted in a lot of um, articles and sources and documentaries on this case. It was undeniable, though, that he did associate with some shady people. That I cannot deny. I cannot play devil's advocate on on that aspect. He, yeah, he knew some shady people. Han and Bick, they wanted their daughter to work in healthcare, make big dollars, and here she was flouncing around. So this just, that wasn't working for them. Police, they know all this. And she is brought in for a second interview. She is still treated as a witness, but they want to catch her out in a few lies before really committing to suspecting her for having something to do with this, to being related to whatever the hell happened in that house that night. So she goes over the story again. But this time, a few details are not lining up with her first interview, like when the gunman tied her up and like small details like that. And this is exactly what police are looking for. If every detail doesn't match with her first story exactly, police are going to take note because that usually means the person telling the story has confused their lies. 
It could also mean they were so traumatized the first time they told the story that some details were overlooked or misspoken about. It's the investigator's job to figure out which is which. In this interview, police asked Jennifer to recreate how she dialed 911 on her flip phone with her hands tied behind her back. So they get her to use an object that resembles a flip phone. They don't actually give her a flip phone to show them how she actually does it. Like, let's see the logistics of this because they were having a hard time imagining how she could have pulled this off. So police, they get her to stand up. They get her to like pretend her hands are tied behind her back. So she has her hands behind her back. She has her cell phone where she said she always keeps her cell phone, which is in her like back of her waistband so like kind of near her butt in the waistband and she shows them how she could kind of move her arms over and wiggle out the cell phone with her fingers and then bring it to this like around the side of her body and dial 911 and then she said she yelled into the phone when the phone was at her waist and she they asked her well how did you hear the 911 operator and she's like oh I could hear them because I turned the speaker volume up to maximum on my phone so I could just yell into the phone I could hear what they were saying back it was for sure possible that she was tied up and made that phone call at the same time she proved this this it I watched it I was like okay no yeah that's actually yeah that's actually legit but to me in that 911 call it didn't really sound like she was yelling into the phone. You know how you can tell when a phone's far away and someone's like, oh yeah, I'm just driving or I'm just, I've just had to put my phone down for a minute and it just sounds weird. I don't know. That was never analyzed. So I can't, this is as far as I can go on that. But still more details were getting muddled, such as which gunman said what and what they were wearing and how much cash they took from her parents' room. There were just these like details that weren't lining up perfectly. The investigator asked her about her double life she lived and why she had to keep that secret from her parents and why she chose to move move back in with them and, you know, go back to studying and stop seeing her boyfriend. Jennifer said, I chose what I chose and in the end, I chose my family. Police suspect she was connected to these gunmen and the investigator asks her, were you in any way responsible for this? Were you involved in something that may have brought this on, like some kind of illegal activity. When she is asked this, she sits there staring at the investigator with her hand on her chest, like almost around her neck, but like on, on, on right in the middle of the chest, let's say, um, like flat palmed on her chest. And she's just staring at the investigator, looking incredibly shocked. Like she's like, what, who, me? And she denies anything to do with the gunman. But police, they find it odd that she was the only person not shot by the gunman. And they ask her that, like, don't you think that's weird? Don't you think that's weird that, you know, your mother was murdered and your father was shot in the face and you were just tied up with a shoelace? Not even punched in the face, not even kicked, no bruises, no nothing? And she's like, oh, well, um, uh... They said that um, if I complied, then I would be okay. And I complied. So I guess that's why. Remember this. Remember she's saying this. Remember she's saying she has no idea why her house was targeted and that she in no way was involved in this. Because in her next interview, 
an entirely different story comes out. It's not the truth, but it's an entirely different story. Just as a side note, um, I loved how the investigator ends this four-hour interview with her because he tells Jennifer, because Jennifer's like, oh, I'm just like really scared. Like you're scaring me. And, and he's like, sit down. Let's talk about this. Tell me what you're feeling and, you know, why you're feeling this. And Jennifer's like, well, I'm just like really afraid. And he tells Jennifer, you know, don't be afraid. If you're being truthful and you have, then if you're being truthful, you have nothing to fear, which I mean, Someone who hasn't lied, that might put them at ease, but she does not look at ease. She looks scared. He also says something about uh, wanting Jennifer to walk away from the interview thinking that he's going to do everything possible to catch the people who did this. Again, this did not put her at ease because he's like, I will catch these people. Don't be scared of me. Think of me as the good guy. I'm going to get these people. Think of me as the guy that's going to leave no stone unturned. To anybody who wants a crime solved, you're gonna that's you're gonna feel relaxed when someone tells you that. I mean, in this situation, it's a pretty brutal thing that she had just gone through. So I don't expect her to be like, "Oh, my hero," but you know, at least she would be like, "You know, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Like anything I can do to help you." But no, 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 no. She is not put at ease at all. She actually expresses her fears that they think she may have something to do with it and she doesn't even want to say it she's like I'm just scared and he's like why and she's like I just have these thoughts and I don't even want to say it out loud and the officer's like do you have these thoughts that maybe we think you know more than what you're saying or you have some kind of involvement in this I don't know just it was a very interesting end to the interrogation or the interview sorry it wasn't an interrogation it was an interview um I just thought that was a very interesting way to end that (laughs) The reason I know so much about these interviews is because they're all online. There is so much firsthand information online about this case. It was absolutely wild to find all of this stuff. I have linked them in my show notes if you want to see how the interviews and interrogations are conducted. I find that aspect of investigations absolutely fascinating, especially when they can have like a, a behavioral scientist go over what's happening step by step oh this is why they're doing this this is when they put their you know when you like clasp your hands together on your lap and you're like moving your hands around like that's when somebody's like trying to soothe themselves or when they put their hands up in like a praying motion or when they sit back or when they move close I just I find that absolutely fascinating so I have linked that there are I think it's about 10 hours of interviews and interrogations that the police do with Jennifer So just a couple days later, Jennifer's father, Han, he comes out of his coma. He is alive and he has some information for police that confirms their suspicions. Jennifer did not count on her father living. So when the gunmen were in the house, Han saw her being friendly with them. Friendly with the gunmen. He saw Jennifer walking around not tied up and he tells police this on November 16th, but he does this secretly. He doesn't want her to know. I don't know if it was him or the police, but they didn't want her to know this information that her father had given police. In fact, they didn't even want Jennifer to know that he was able to communicate and that he was totally like functioning and, and conscious because he they got 
Han to call Jennifer. And during that phone call, they made Han talk. They, I mean, they didn't make him, but he probably agreed to this plan that he would speak like really groggy and really slow, kind of like he had like a, a brain injury or something because they had recently said, look, Jennifer, even if your father wakes up, he's probably going to have brain injuries because he was shot in the face. So we really need all the information we can get from you because, you know, if even if your father wakes up, we're not going to get this information from him. So she was not expecting this at all. Police were suspecting her. Her father was like, fuck y'all lie to her because I'm pretty sure she has something to do with it. He was very badly injured and had fragments from the bullets still lodged in his face and body, but he was alive and he was coherent. He knew what he saw that night. He did have minor brain injury, which would mean Jennifer's defense could throw out what he had said. But if they get a confession from Jennifer, well, that's a different story. November 22nd, Jennifer is brought in for another interview. She is totally a suspect now. From what Han said, it would appear she did in fact know the gunman. Just like all the other interviews Jennifer has had with police, she is crying, but there are no tears. The investigator pretends to side with her, saying things like, she must have felt so pressured by her parents and the way that they treated her regarding their strict rules was abuse. He asks her what she wanted to do with her life, not what her parents wanted her to do with her life, but what did she want to do with her life? And she answers that she would be happy to be a lab technician during the day and teach piano at night. Why wouldn't she do that then? What? That's what I wondered. Like that sounds like something any parent would want their kids to do that's a that's a good life but I guess she felt like her parents wouldn't accept that like that wasn't good enough then the investigator gets into the hard stuff with Jennifer he says hey you know you must have known what was going to happen that night before it happened and maybe you should just tell us the truth so this is a classic interrogation method I mean (laughs) actually wait what's so classic about that he's literally just saying tell the truth never mind just scratch that So he's kind of hinting at this point. I mean, it's not very subtle, but he's saying, hey, there's some evidence pointing at you might have known what was going to happen before it happened. Jennifer keeps saying she wanted to stop referring to the gunman in her home. So she's, you know, in the, she's all teary eyed and she's like, oh, well, I wanted it to stop. And the guy's like, like, you wanted it to stop, like you didn't want the gunman to come into your home, or like what's happening there? And she says she didn't know who they were. She is also very concerned about what's going to happen to her. She keeps saying it a lot, a lot of the time. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? So she knows they know, but they don't really know much. So she comes up with another story. They're kind of in this like weird tango interrogation dance where she's like okay they know and they're like we want her to think we know more than we do so she gives us more information it's it's like a tango really the investigator pulls a controversial method during this time and he lies about having evidence they don't actually have he says something about military satellites that are like an x-ray that used an infrared to track movement and they can get a hold of this like this has been recorded and they can get a hold of this evidence and they can actually see the movements 
that took place in her home that night. And by doing this, he's trying to get her to think they know the movements that that took place. Like they know how people were moving around in the home that night. And I'm pretty sure he's he's hinting at the fact they may be able to see she was moving around the home unbound and, and free, which she told them differently. She says she was tied up. And then Jennifer whispers through her sobs, quote, they were supposed to kill me, unquote. She says that she hired the gunman to kill her, not her parents. This is what she's telling the investigator now. So she's saying she put a hit on herself. What the fuck? I've, I've never heard that before. This is new to me. But, you know, this does not make sense at all. And if it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. She tells the detective she doesn't know who the men were. She didn't know their names. She only has a phone number that she got from a guy named Rick. By the way, that's another lie. There is nobody named Rick. Rick does not exist. I'm just going to say that now. She said she hired them to come into her home and kill her, but said she changed her mind and told them not to do it. And they were demanding a cancellation fee, which was the same price as the job that, you know, she hired them to do, which was to kill her. Um, and she couldn't, she couldn't pay them because she didn't have the money. So apparently they came anyway. But instead of killing her, they killed her parents because she couldn't pay them the cancellation fee for the original hit she put on herself. So I was like, what is happening right now? So I, I guess this was them getting back at her for wasting their time and not, not paying them to not kill her. This seems very odd and it also seems like bad business because I'm assuming they would have asked for a payment up front if she was paying them to kill herself I mean it's not like she could pay them after I don't know this is it just was really weird I got confused during all of this I, it didn't sit well with me in terms of it being the truth obviously this didn't make sense to police either but they now had enough evidence that she did have something to do with it and she knew the gunman or like she know she she had something to do with it and she had something to do with the gunman like she was now tying herself to this after this interview jennifer is arrested for murder attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder what do police and prosecutors actually believe happened that night Evidence is uncovered from a burner phone Jennifer had been given and 116 text messages between her and her boyfriend, Daniel Wong, were discovered and all those messages were within the time frame, within like a six hour window of before the attacks happened that night on November 8th. There was also surveillance footage that police got from the neighbor's outdoor camera and it showed the three men entering the property. And when compared with messages from Jennifer's burner phone to one of the gunman's phones, there was a text message sent to Jennifer at the same time they showed up on camera on Han and Bick's property, like on the residence. And this message read, VIP access. Police believe this was code for Jennifer to unlock the front door so the gunman could enter. Also discovered was before Jennifer set up this plot with Daniel and the three gunmen, she tried earlier that year in the spring, so roughly around like May or June, with a former classmate offering his roommate 
$1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot of where he worked. So she had tried to set up a hit on Han earlier and this was discovered. Luckily, it appeared this guy was just looking to take her money and nothing happened from this transaction. Uh, and police, they actually find this guy and they ask him, they're like, did Jennifer pay you $1,500 to kill her father? And this guy said, well, she gave me $200 once, but that was for a night out and, and I gave it back to her. Um, but also she did, well, she did call me in July and she was desperately telling me, go kill her father. Um, and they were like, well, what did you say to her about this? And he was like, I was like, no way. Like, fuck, no, go away. So this would have been four months earlier before this home invasion. This just proves she was trying to get someone to kill her father you know maybe even both of her parents but this was only specifically for her father um which is terrifying that is really fucked up another thing that was discovered in text messages between daniel and jennifer was jennifer saying oh you know if my parents died i would receive my share of like it was like assets or insurance and it would be like half a million dollars and wouldn't that be nice we could like live to we we could move out and like have enough money get a place of our own so there was like ooh, those um that weird message was uncovered so that does not look good either and yeah half a million dollars that's going to be pretty useful um when moving out on your own and you don't really have a lot of money obviously that's going to be quite useful but police believe that wasn't jennifer's main motive she didn't want to disappoint her parents and she wanted to be free she wanted to live her life how she wanted to live it without judgment she didn't want to be disowned um you know she wanted to be with her boyfriend daniel and her parents didn't want that so they believe that the main motive was actually just to get rid of her parents so she could be with her boyfriend it seems like Jennifer and Daniel, they had broken up for a while after Jennifer's parents discovered that they were, were still dating, even though they had forbid her, her from seeing him. Um, so they did break up for a while there. But um, and it, that was because Daniel was sick of sneaking around. They were in their 20s by this point, and he was over it. And he had found a new girlfriend, actually, which Jennifer, she hated. According to TorontoLife.com, Daniel's new girlfriend, I think her name I'm going to leave her name out of this. According to torontolife.com, Daniel Wong's new girlfriend. Um, I'm going to leave her name out of this. I'm just going to call her Daniel's new girlfriend. Apparently, Daniel's new girlfriend was uh, threatening Jennifer by sending people to her home to sexually assault her and sending her bullets in the mail. So this is what Jennifer was telling Daniel that Daniel's new girlfriend was doing. I couldn't find any evidence of this sexual assault or of this bullet being um, sent in the mail by Daniel's new girlfriend to Jennifer so the, the jury's still out on that one and a lot of people believe that Jennifer made that up just to get Daniel back just to make and to make Daniel's new girlfriend look really bad but how did Jennifer know the gunman who came to her home that night how did she meet them and how did they plan this after the failed attempt with her former classmate's roommate fell through, 
she turned to Daniel for help as they had recently started dating again. That burner phone she had was actually an iPhone that Daniel gave Jennifer with a SIM card so she could communicate with him and the hitmen without having to use her personal phone. This is when Daniel connects Jennifer with his friend they call Homeboy. His real name is Lenford Crawford. Jennifer asked this guy how much to hire you for a murder and he tells her because she's friends with Daniel it will only cost ten thousand dollars but his usual rate is twenty thousand dollars so that ten thousand dollar price that was they made an agreement that it would be five thousand dollars per person that's how much their lives were worth to her just over a week before the November 8th home invasion, which resulted in Bick's death and hand being shot, Lenford was said to have visited the neighborhood in which Jennifer lived in on Halloween, seemingly to scope out the area. How creepy is that detail? So I read a few different things about this. One was that he was there to scope out the neighborhood. The other was that he was there possibly to do something sinister that night in the pan home um either way he didn't nothing happened on halloween so maybe that's where they got scoping the area out from but just that detail that is so creepy when i read that i imagined a bunch of kids running around having fun dressed up in costumes and lurking among them is this soon-to-be killer stalking his prey It's like out of a Michael Myers movie. It's like out of a Halloween movie. On November 2nd, one week before the murder, Jennifer and Daniel were again texting about the plan. But at this point, Daniel told Jennifer that he still had feelings for the girl he dated um, when they had broken up. So Daniel's that new girlfriend that was allegedly threatening Jennifer. And Jennifer was basically saying, fine, then call it off with homeboy. And Daniel responds, well, I thought you were doing this for you. And she said, yeah, well, I am doing it for myself. So I don't know. That that was weird. And then soon after those text messages, they were being flirty and acting like they were in a relationship again. So I'm not really sure what happened there. But some people do believe this was Daniel trying to kind of distance himself from what was about to happen. The day after that weird conversation, Daniel texts Jennifer saying he did everything and lined it up for her. So if the day before was to try to distance himself from this, the next day, he definitely, definitely did not distance himself from this. It would appear that this means that that message that he had lined everything up, that that was about the hit. Because later on the same day, Lenford, aka Homeboy, texts Jennifer asking her for a time of completion and for her to think about it. Later, Jennifer would testify that that text message was wasn't about uh the day to kill her parents it was about when to pay him that cancellation money to not kill her which still doesn't make sense to me the day was set for november 8th that morning lenford texted jennifer that tonight was game time that's what he said tonight is game time this must have been a code and their code it's kind of blown away like it's kind of doesn't really make sense when their text messages are discovered and line up perfectly with the crime okay I guess they didn't think about that they were going to make it look like a home invasion turned terribly violent so that was their plan if that was their plan though then why didn't they take more stuff they had this plan to make it look like a home invasion but 
there was only one problem. They didn't rob the place. One of the first things police noticed was that the cars, those luxury cars and the TVs and even some more cash had been left behind. There was a lot of valuable stuff in that house. No jewelry was taken. Nothing Nothing was taken aside from that $1,100 and from um, Bick and Han's bedroom and Jennifer's piano teaching cash. Police believe that Jennifer signaled to the gunman by flashing one of the upstairs lights on and off to let them know that she had unlocked the door. And police think this because in that security footage that they got from the uh, a home in the neighborhood, they can see this light going on and off, on and off. And then they can see these men coming onto the property. When the gunman entered the home, at first they found Bick. She had been downstairs soaking her feet because she had done a line dancing class that evening. And one of the other men went and got Han out of bed at gunpoint. That is, oh, that detail is just so sad. He is this man who's just in bed trying to get some sleep and he's woken up by a man pointing a gun at him telling him to move like that's so terrifying and the third gunman went to get jennifer then they demanded the money which this seems odd to me because if they're there to murder two people and make it look like a a home invasion why are they doing this whole persona that they are actually doing a home invasion in front of the two people they believe are not gonna live to talk to police about what happened in the home that night. Why didn't they come in, do what they had to do, steal a bunch of stuff to make it looked to make it look like a, a a robbery or you know a home invasion for goods and and money, and then just throw that shit away like I don't know in a next town or something. So I don't know this whole thing. I'm like I okay. So Bick and Han they were brought into the basement, and Han was shot first, then Bick who died instantly. Jennifer had went upstairs, and one of the gunmen tied her to stage the scene, and then that's when she called nine one one, not realizing her father was still alive. Oh yeah, police have something else as well. Something else I didn't um, say yet. So when Daniel Wong was brought in for questioning, he totally admitted Jennifer wanted her parents dead that looks pretty bad apparently daniel and jennifer they didn't talk to each other about oh well what what are we going to say to police if police suspect us and bring us in for questioning they didn't have that foresight they didn't go that far into this plan and now her own boyfriend is telling police oh yeah no no she wanted her parents dead that is um yeah That's kind of a nail in the coffin at this point. So police discovered the gunmen who entered the house that night were Lenford Crawford, Eric Cardi, and David Milvaganum. These three and Daniel Wong were all arrested between mid-April to early May of 2011 for first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Police could see through cell phone records and location pings They had all been meeting up prior to and after the home invasion on November 8th. So they were all connected to each other. Unrelated to this, Eric Cardi was tied to and convicted for another murder in 2009. He was actually in prison when police arrested him for murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder in the um, Han and Bick case. Jennifer, Daniel Wong, 
Lenford Crawford, and David Milvagnum's trial started in March of 2014, and they unbelievably all pled not guilty. There was more than enough evidence to prove otherwise. By enough evidence, I mean 50 witnesses and 200 exhibits of evidence. That is a lot. These four were all found guilty of attempted murder and first-degree murder. At their sentencing, they were all sentenced to life in prison for each charge. But these charges, these sentences, they could be served concurrently, meaning the life sentences are served at the same time. So instead of serving 50 years, they each serve 25 years, which I never understand why courts do that. It's almost like, you know, the person getting sentenced is, is getting off on an entire sentencing of an entire crime but you know the courts have spoken this means they can all be eligible for parole in 2035 daniel wong will be 50 years old and jennifer pan will be 49 years old the other man involved eric cardi he was also in this trial but his lawyer got sick um, so he was delayed and, and that caused a mistrial for him. But in December of 2015, he pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to 18 years with possibility of parole after nine years. But here's the thing. He was convicted of another murder unrelated to this and had already received a 25-year sentence that he was serving. The conviction of conspiracy to commit murder sentence was to be served again concurrently and to me this feels like what's the point what's the point of even giving him a sentencing then what's the point of even taking this like I realize what the point is taking it to trial because the victims can be like hey actually he didn't take it to trial he said no I, I'll just plead guilty because I don't want to put Han through the trauma of going through another trial again which I mean that does seem halfway decent but it's like, oh, you know, you were found guilty, but you don't get any jail time because you're already in prison type of thing. I just don't understand concurrent sentencings. I don't know. Where in the Sam Hill did this come from? <laughs> Who made up this law? So Han Pan, he gave a victim impact statement. He didn't go into the court, but he did give this statement that was read to the court. And it describes how he's always in pain from his injuries and he will have to spend the rest of his, his life on medication. He spoke about how much he misses his wife of 30 years, how he misses her cooking, how he finds no joy in life anymore, how his health is rapidly declined, and how he and Bick dedicated their lives to giving their children the best opportunities to succeed. He can't, he also explains how he can't live in his home after what happened. I mean, that's understandable, but he also can't sell it because he describes the neighborhood being predominantly a Chinese neighborhood um, and superstitions will prevent anyone from wanting to buy it. He and his son's relationship, Felix, it's also very strained because Felix, obviously he's really heard about what happened and he doesn't want to talk about it at all. And yeah, it's just you know it it ripped their family apart it ruined this family it it was just so heart-wrenching to hear his victim impact statement and to think of what he has to live with now but you know he is one tough man to survive what he did and to keep surviving every day Felix Pan Jennifer's brother he also um, gave his victim impact statement and how it affected his life. And he describes his life now as if he is living in a house of darkness. 
A non-communication order was also given to Jennifer, and this was to ensure she can never, ever speak to or contact her father or brother ever again. So I guess in the end, she did get disowned. It really shook me, this one. This case, it's it really shook me. It's so true that you never know what people are capable capable of monsters they don't always appear to be monsters on the outside in my opinion they work the hardest to appear to be someone they're not they work really hard to hide that they are a monster and the things that they are capable of and jennifer she was no different she looked like this sweet quiet girl who excelled at figure skating and piano she's soft-spoken and timid looking but she was totally capable of organizing this brutal murder of her parents and being in the home as it happened and listening to everything. Police said they followed her uh, to her mother's funeral to survey her. I believe it was after her first interview. They started um, tailing her and, and documenting everything that she was doing. And they went to her mother's funeral to survey her and she didn't cry at all she was at her mother's funeral just there not crying so i mean everybody acts differently everybody grieves differently but that's um i mean that yeah police found that very suspicious and how someone can do that i will just never know and knowing what we know now it kind of makes sense as for who exactly held the gun and pulled the trigger that killed bick and left hand for dead well only the killers know that that information has never come out, and I'm not even sure if police know that. That wraps up this week's case. I'm not sure what you are listening on, but if you can please remember to share Hell No with friends who listen to true crime podcasts and or follow this podcast to get notified when new episodes are released. Hell No, a true crime podcast is also on Instagram, so head over there. I would love to see you follow that. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye.